Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So today I'm talking to Dr. Christina Eckergren. So Christina is a good friend of mine and Susanna, and a senior research fellow at the Rehabilitation, Aging and Independent Living or RAIL Research Centre at Monash University. So next door to me in physiotherapy. And Christina's research focuses on independent living, physical activity in clinical populations, specifically hospitalized patients and older adults and people recovering from traumatic injury. So there's quite a lot of expertise on the other end of the call today. Um, Christine has done quite a lot in her career. I want to ask her all about it and about her research interests. I think these are some topics that I'm sure going to find very interesting. I always enjoy catching up with Christina, so I'm sure you'll find them interesting as well. So let's bring her on, Christina Eckergren. Welcome to Physio Foundations. Hi, Luke. Thanks for having me. You're someone who I've had on my list to have on the podcast for, well, two years it's been going for, but before that, when I was planning episodes. So there's a lot we can talk about. We finally got to do a, an episode. It's early January yep. 2024. So <laughs> happy new year to you. Thank you. Feeling fresh. Yeah, feeling ready to go. Let's go into your background and interests. Um, what, um, what, do you want to just, let's start broadly. Do you want to tell everyone about your your background and interests and and then we'll lead into current projects and research and we'll go from there? Mm, okay. So uh, I'm obviously a physio. I trained a long time ago at the University of Melbourne. And uh, when I was studying physio, it was um, for me all about one day becoming a dance physio because I, I grew up doing ballet pretty seriously and um, that was my main driving force for getting into physio. And, and so then um, when I finished physio, I did work as a dance physio for a long time and through that got interested in dance injuries and injury epidemiology and um, very circuitous path but ended up doing a PhD in injury epidemiology, not in dance, in football, <laughs> which I knew nothing about and repeatedly made a fool of myself by asking silly questions. And then uh, from there, I got interested in looking at what happened to physical activity levels of people who experienced major traumatic injuries. And then that flowed on to looking at physical activity levels in older adults and in hospitals. And I would say now that physical activity research is my main area of interest. And as you said in the intro, I look at physical activity in various different clinical populations um, and have particular passion for how we get hospitalised patients to be more active when they're in hospital, particularly people who are in hospital for a long time, such as the um, GEM population, geriatric evaluation and management. Yeah. So that's sort of the focus of my work at the moment at, at RAIL. It's almost like you've been asked that before. You've given a very succinct summary of how many, <laughs> should we uh, tell everyone how long we've been practicing for? 20 years oh, of, of yeah. physiotherapy career. So yeah, yeah. Um, take us, let's get into that then. How Tell us. The general audience, who, who I'm a part of, um, definitely not a specialist in your areas. Why? Um, so, so physical activity research, particularly in people who are hospitalised, and and how to get people who are hospitalised more active. Take us, 
into the hospital where people are experiencing trauma, for example, or long-term hospitalization and tell us a bit about what happens there and then why that is so important to get people physically active in that environment. Yeah, well, I mean, it all comes back to functional decline and older adults in particular are really vulnerable to functional decline when they're in hospital. So what that means is that they come into hospital and they might be able to dress themselves and bathe themselves and take themselves to the toilet, but in up to 50% of the older adult population they lose some of that ability by the time they're discharged from hospital. And you can see why that's really problematic. So when then they go home from hospital, they have greater care needs, which are costly. They may even need to go into a nursing home, which nobody really wants to do. And they give up a lot of their quality of life and independence. So key to keeping people's functional ability maintained is involving them in their activities of daily living while they're in hospital. And part of that is functional mobility and mobility independence. And unfortunately, I mean, it sounds simple, you know, make sure people move around a bit more while they're in hospital, but it's a really wicked problem. One of these wicked problems because there are so many different competing interests in a hospital. Uh, There are so many different professions involved in care. Uh, There's the patient, the family, the organisation, the clinicians, the policies. And sometimes it seems like all of those things are conspiring to keep patients sedentary. Mm. (laughs) And so for me, this is a really interesting area to work in um, because it is complex and I'm always thinking about, oh, what if we tried that? And what if we tried that? And, you know, what, what could we do differently? And one of the things that I'm trialling at the moment is the idea of introducing a physical activity vital sign to hospital settings. So for the last year or two, I've been talking to patients and clinicians in hospitals all around the world about what they think about the idea of introducing physical activity as a vital sign alongside blood pressure and heart rate and all of the things that get measured. And if we did do that, what a measure would look like and who would measure it and, yeah, how we would do it. And so I'm sort of um, starting to compile all of that evidence and I'm going to be using a process called design thinking or human-centred design design to see if we can come up with a measurement tool. So it's kind of attacking the problem from a different angle, one that's sort of based on routine monitoring and um, something that could also be used by patients as a goal setting tool. So, you know, here's your physical activity level today. Let's see if next week we can get to there. So, yeah, that's what I'm working on at the moment. Well, one of the one of the easiest ways to increase your own physical activity is to look down at the watch most people are wearing right now and have a shock when you see the low step count on that work day right. if you're in a sedentary yep. occupation. So is that, is that sort of a in the same way of thinking about incentivizing through measurements and and making people more aware in that environment or yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Exactly that. It's sort of measurement as a as an intervention. Um, mm. It's interesting you mentioned the 
the devices though. I've, I've used a lot of devices in the hospital setting and, you know, they work for individual research studies for short periods of time, but on an ongoing basis for routine monitoring, it's really hard using devices because they go missing. So I've I've fished a lot of six hundred dollar active pals out of bins and oh. shower drains and driven okay. to patients' houses and said, "Oh, there's a thing on your leg. We need it back." And yeah. then you know, once you get the devices back, if you haven't lost them all, you have to download the data and. Um, analyze the data and so it's really tricky using that kind of monitoring in in mm. hospitals just because of that complexity I mentioned before you've got a cast of thousands coming in and out of patients rooms every day and you know you can say to as many people as you like don't move don't remove this device from the patient's leg but somebody will and then they'll throw it in the bin <laughs> throw it in the bin <laughs> I mean look and in, in, in defense like this it's life or death situation a lot of the time in hospital, it, particularly yeah. as things even for routine non-life or death surgeries that go on that can become serious and lots oh, of competing yeah. interests, lots of exactly. barriers to to doing research, but also to to just doing physical activity and these things can happen. But that, yeah, that would be frustrating to find mm. your six hundred dollar device thrown. <laughs> you could have just put it in the nightstand. But I mean, yeah. Um, so yeah. that gives us some insight into the challenges of your work, which is doing research in hospitals. Tell mm. us more. So tell us more about the PA, physical activity. I'm just reading my notes, PA, the physical activity vital sign. So you've got heart rate, blood pressure, saturation of oxygen, and potentially that person's daily or weekly physical activity as a bit of a a sign of whether their functional status is declining. That's right. How much work would that be to do? What would it look like? Would it go on the charts Mm. at the foot of the bed? Mm. What Mm. are you thinking? Well, these are all the questions that we're asking clinicians at the moment. Um, I think the front runner for what could be most feasible at the moment is something that the nurses complete at the end of their shift. And it might be difficult to come up with um, something really precise. So I don't think if we compared a measurement tool like that with a measurement tool like a pedometer or a Fitbit, we're not going to get a matching score. But it's more about saying to everyone on the staff, this is something important. How much patients move around is a really important metric. And even if it's a, you know, rough estimation of how much the patient did that day, then it's still going to be valuable information. So, yeah, potentially something that's paper-based, something the nurses use. It could even be something that goes on a whiteboard or um, a screen if the hospital was set up to be digitally enabled. And, um, you know, it could also be completed with the assistance of patients and families and all of that sort of thing. We talked to patients about what they thought of that kind of idea and they liked it. They said, oh, well, it would be good because then I could show the doctor how much I'm doing. And I think that they see the doctor as the gateway. So if I show the doctor that I walked around the block, then I'll get I'll get out of here. <laughs> Well, that's, that's it, isn't it? No one likes being in hospital. They Everyone's don't. number one goal is to get out. It is. It and really is. And to not is. decline functionally. And it's, that's yeah. it. Which is a whole nother conversation and a reason for that, isn't it? But, but Oh, it is. It's, it's fascinating because I, there's a real um, difference of opinion in why patients don't move around in hospital. And often clinicians will say the patients don't want to move. They don't want to get up. 
and then you talk to the patients and yeah sure they might be feeling a bit sort of tired and demotivated and all of that sort of thing but if you say to them well you know if you if you can get up and show us that you can be mobile then you know that's evidence that you might be ready to go home and then it's like oh okay yep yep no I definitely want to get out of here I definitely want to do more so yeah I think that there's often a miscommunication about why patients aren't moving around more and then the whole falls prevention policies is another side of things. So often patients are really restricted in how much they move around because people don't want them falling. And that's that's totally fair enough. But you hear about crazy things. So you hear about, um, so one of our colleagues who is um, a real, I won't say who, but a really experienced neurophysio was not allowed to walk her dad up and down the hall the day before he went home because of the falls risk. It's like, well, she's worked, she's walked people up and down the hall who are maximum to assist, you know. <laughs> so, And then, you know, you hear about someone who's going home the next day with their husband and the husband's not allowed to go for a walk with them. Yeah. It's like, well, how are they supposed to cope when they go home? You can so see it from these- both sides, as you're saying. Yeah. You can see the institutional, the policies. We didn't say bureaucracy, but the policies there that, that make you um, – potentially be more cautious and then you can see this from the side of the person who's going to be independently ambulant at home tomorrow anyway yeah um, that's it mm, and so I think that's that a, it's a tough challenge that you're you're taking is. on yeah and I think for me the key is allowing some shared decision making in terms of mobility and falls which does not happen it, all of the decision making is top down in hospitals and you can see why that simplifies everything but does it result in the best outcomes for patients? I don't think so. So it probably has an impact on that physical activity, number one. And then, as you've already said, that relates strongly to people's functional decline when they're in there, particularly when they're older. So is, yeah. is there a relationship between physical activity and health outcomes in general? Is it linear or do you get to a point where it really drops off? Mm. And so you get below a point of physical activity each day where we know that's going to be a problem. And if you can keep just enough going, you'll probably you know, continue on or improve. What, what's the relationship yeah, absolutely. like? Um, so the relationship is actually a hockey stick. That's when it comes to something like um, mortality as an outcome. So I went to this great um, keynote presentation at an international physical activity conference in Sweden last year. And the presenter had a big hockey stick up on the stage. <laughs> and it was to remind us that that relationship is hockey stick shaped. So, sorry, so what I mean by hockey, that. Yeah, yeah, which yeah, way yeah. is it facing? I'll, I'll explain. <laughs> so you're holding the hockey stick upright. And as you do more physical activity, you move towards the tip of the hockey stick, like the yeah. flat bit at, at the bottom. And as you do more physical activity, your risk of mortality declines along the shaft of the stick. Okay. But you'll get to a certain point where that diagonal line downwards, the shaft of the hockey stick, will flatten out because beyond, and I can't remember the exact amount, but it's around about 150 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity, your mortality risk doesn't decline further. So there is a sweet spot an optimal spot mm. or something like mortality. And you do see that similar pattern with other types of outcomes. 
Um, so you would certainly see that in the hospitalised population. And I think that they've come up with, um, there, was a, there was a really good systematic review that was published in BJSM last year looking at what is the optimal dose of physical activity to avoid functional decline in hospital settings. And I think they came up with 25 minutes per day of slow paced walking. So it doesn't sound like very much. Um, I've also heard 600 steps per day is the sweet spot for hospitalized patients. Um, and so we're talking about really small amounts of activity that can avoid some really serious consequences. So it's yeah. pretty amazing. <laughs> Hospitalised older people? That's right, yeah. Yeah. What age? Do we, are we drawing the line? Uh, at, at, for I think calling that, someone an that older person? review, oh, so 65 is usually, okay. yeah. Sure. Yeah, so, but, you know, 65-year-olds are young these days. Yeah. It's nothing, yeah. Nothing compared yeah. to what you do when you're in the community, but you've got all these barriers to moving and even getting out of bed and um, and – a lot and you're unwell a lot of the time. That's We've right. had surgery. Yep. Yep. And, yep. Um, and you've every- got a catheter and you've got an IV pole and you've got your frame stuck in front of you on the chair and the, the table and the bed. And- <laughs> mm. So, your goal really in, in the interventions there, a take home message for me here is that if you can get people in general, this is an average and this is looking at all cause mortality from research, but in general, getting people to do 600 steps on a pedometer, if they're wearing one or 25 minutes a day, slow paced walking, that's going to, for a lot of people, bring them from the danger zone up to an area where they can maintain. And of course, then when they go home or go to rehab, there's going to be a lot more recovery and building aerobic fitness and strength and everything else to follow, but just to stop them going backwards in hospital. That's right. Stop them going backwards. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. So Hmm. um, then- I thought I should point out now that what you're talking about, you've talked to clinicians all around the world and you're talking about basically what you're doing in your research career um, and without talking about research papers. So a lot of Mm. what you're talking about here is all published in journals. So people can look at your Google Scholar or PubMed or Scopus profile. They can look you up and, and read some of these papers for more information. But do you want to talk to us about some of the key papers in this field that you've led and, you know, what you've found and let's talk research. Hmm. Yeah. So um, probably the formative research, um, there's probably three big projects that I've been involved in in recent years. The first one was um, a project we did as part of the statewide NPJ paralysis collaborative. So A lot of your listeners will have heard of NPJ paralysis. Um, It's basically the idea that if you can get people out of their pyjamas in hospital and into their normal clothes, then you can um, basically get them out of hospital more quickly. And part of that is that they'll be more interested in moving around the hospital and part of it is just that they'll start to feel more like their normal selves. Um, And so... Safer Care Victoria, which is part of the Victorian Department of Health, had a big statewide collaborative to bring together lots of hospitals and say, okay, how are we going to do this? And so I was involved in the Alfred Hospital site and we did an evaluation of what happened after the NPJ Paralysis Collaborative. So one of the things, we did an interrupted time series design 
which basically looks at the trends before you introduce the intervention, which in this case was NPJ paralysis, and then you look at the trends after. So you can see whether or not there's any kind of change in the slope of the outcome, which for us, the thing that we were really interested in was falls. And you can also look at whether there's been a step change in those two lines. And so what we discovered was that there was no increase in falls. And that was a really important message because that's, as I spoke about before, often the barrier to getting people to be more active. And um, so, yeah, there was no increase in falls, which was a really good good thing. And so, yeah, we published that a few years ago. And um, Amelia Crabtree, who is a fantastic geriatrician at Monash Health now, um, she was the lead author on, on that paper. And so that was a really great study. And that's the study that really got me interested in this area. Um, another big project I've been involved in recently is um, the BFIT study at Al Alfred Health. So this was a study in on the trauma wards of the Alfred. And the Alfred is one of the busiest trauma centres in Australasia. The TAC funded the Alfred to We'll just give build. our international listeners or interstate oh, yeah, listeners the yeah. abbreviation, the Transport Accident Commission, so that motor vehicle accidents um, compensation scheme. That's it. Yep, yep. Go, go on. So they funded the Alfred to build a new trauma ward and also to implement a new allied health model of care. And along with Belinda Gabay at the School of Public Health at Monash, we did an evaluation of the impact of those two things. And it was really interesting. Um, the new ward in terms of patients' activity levels didn't actually have a huge impact. Um, and in fact, some things got worse. Okay. Patients did a lot more self-care activities inside their rooms rather than outside their rooms. Um, and their walking and climbing stairs went down a little bit as well. And then once the new intensive allied health model of care was implemented, uh, there was a huge increase in patients' activity levels, which basically says that, you know, if you fund more OTs, physios, social workers, psychologists on a ward, it really enables people's independence and sort of sets them up really well for going home. So that was seen to be a really cost-effective model, which the Alfred has now committed to uh, funding on a continual basis, which is fantastic. So if you ever experience trauma and end up at the Alfred, you're going to get tons of allied health intervention um, and it is also making a big difference to where people go after their acute stay so um, in the past a lot of patients went to rehab after their acute stay and now a lot more are going home which is a really good outcome for people mm. so and that was a cool study yeah there's multiple yeah. levels of outcome there the impact of so advocacy for allied health and then funding mm. mm -hmm. and impact on people Going home mm. early, the number one thing people want when they're in hospital is to leave. That's it. And, and the length better. of stay, the length of stay in the acute setting went down as well. And that's why it was so cost effective. Mm. Because you, hospitals um, are very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so you don't do it on your own. You you're researching teams. And did, mm. did you or people in your team just do cost effectiveness or economic evaluations as well alongside the, the patient outcomes? Yep, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so we worked with Lisa Higgins um, from the School of Public Health on that evaluation. Um, and I think that uh, more and more health economists are seen to be 
a really critical member of any research team, particularly when you're evaluating interventions um, in healthcare settings. So yeah, if you ever feel like a career change out of physio, you will never be short of a job if you become a health economist. <laughs> I think yeah, I think this is good for our for all the audience to to hear about this. If you're in private practice, it is, it's really insightful to think about if someone's been recently been to hospital, what challenges they're facing and um, what you can do it once they've left hospital to encourage physical activity in this case, but mm. you know, the, taking, looking a bit more broadly at their health and, mm. and these issues. Mm. And um, yeah. the note I, I um, wrote down for the end pajama paralysis study was um, get dressed and make your bed. So. <laughs> you know, how, how how do you feel when you know, on those days when you're feeling lazy and you? Well, I don't have many of them anymore, but maybe our younger audience can relate. You have a, a bit of a sleep in. I don't get them anymore, um, and then you're not dressed by nine or ten or whatever it is. Yeah. And as soon as then and you get up and you have a shower and you brush your teeth and get dressed and and start to think about the day how the mood changes and how everything oh, absolutely. changes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that intervention because it's, it's like a mobility intervention by stealth because it's not saying to people, you've got to get moving, but it's intervening on a really critical part of the process towards that. And, you know, of course you're going to not want to, get up and move around a busy hospital ward if you're in your nightie or your gown with the back open and, you know, once you put your clothes on, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, able to go out and interact with the world now. Mm. And do some people feel that they, that they don't, um, they're not allowed to. They're in hospital yeah. here, I'm not allowed to wear That's my it. clothes. I've got to do oh, what yeah. I'm told. And That's it, yeah, especially so- older people. So the only clothes that a lot of older people bring into hospital um, are nighties and pyjamas and things like that. And we need to start saying to people, no, bring in your normal clothes, bring in a, a pair of tracksuit pants and a hoodie and, you know, something that is it's still easy to get on and off and, and so forth. Um, one, of, one of the barriers, the big barrier was laundry for that inter- intervention because these normal clothes can't go to the normal host- hospital laundry systems. Um, and so then patients run out of clothes and so then, you know, if you don't have family to come in and take your clothes in and take your clothes home and and wash them, then that can be a big barrier. But one of the cool things, sorry, I'll just quickly say this because it was a really cool part of our intervention at the Alfred was that they set up a pop-up op shop. So if patients didn't have clothes, they could go down to this room where there were a whole bunch of donated clothes and pick out something new to wear. So that was really cool. That's that. Well, that's it. Um, it's always fun getting new clothes as well, and might pick yeah. up a bargain. There you go. That's it. Well, that's free. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, it's very relatable <laughs> as well. And and another um, another thought I had listening to you there was self-efficacy. And you think about what that would do for your your recovery if you're if the people around you in the hospital who are looking after you are telling you to. Oh, get dressed and get ready and let's go. You, you feel it. like you're moving forward. So You do. And it's amazing when you see someone on a hospital ward in their normal clothes, you think, oh, they must be about to go home. Mm. <laughs> and then you say, are you going home today? And they're like, no, no, I'll be here for another couple of weeks. But it's amazing how that shifts your per- perception of that person. And it also makes you think of the person as a human being rather than a patient, yeah. which is, you know, great as well. Which, yeah. is, which is what they are. And what you should be thinking of, but when you go to hospital and you, everyone's 
mental image of being in hospitals, lying in a bed, wearing a, a gown of some sort, not mm. walking around in your civvies, right? So that's it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so it's, I'm glad we could have a chat about these you know, from your perspective of someone who's led these studies, because as a physiotherapist who has worked on the wards before and our listeners are currently doing that at work, or they might be in private practice. We've had a few episodes of people who are going back into the hospital um, mm. or public health um, environment from private practice and vice versa. So we've had a lot of these, these conversations on the podcast and it's mm. good to talk about beyond the bread and butter skills of physio. Mm. We'll get there yeah. though, because I'm going to ask you the, perennial question on this podcast. Well, why don't we do it now? Uh, what are the okay. most in, what, the question is, what are the most important foundational knowledge and skills for physios? And you can take this anywhere you like. Christina's yeah. opinion. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to sound really biased, but I really think it's important for physios to learn how to talk about physical activity with their patients in every setting. And it's not just because physical activity has so many physical and mental health benefits, which it does, you know, exercise is medicine, all of that stuff. But it's also that I think that helping someone to introduce a physical activity habit to their lives brings their body into their focus. And that can be important for so many reasons. I think one of the things that we need to always do as physios is empower our patients to become in charge of their own bodies rather than us being in charge of them and us being in control of their injury and in control of their pain. We want them to be in control of those things so that they don't come back and they know how to treat themselves in the future. And I feel like physical activity is like the gateway to all of that because if you know, you go to a yoga class once a week and you're like, oh, I've got a bit of a, a stiff spot there. You, you might sort of be able to preempt stretching it out and, and avoiding it becoming something more serious that they would need a physio for. Um, and so, yeah, I think learning how to talk to people about physical activity is really important, whether it be people who already have a pretty established physical activity regime and, you know, seeing if that you can tweak it to make it even better or people who are completely inactive and don't want to be active, being able to talk to them about how you might set an intention in the first place to become more active and, and what that might look like, whether it be gardening or walking the dog or, you know, I don't know, something that doesn't even seem like a physical activity intervention, like standing up and singing in a choir for an hour once a week, something like that. So, yeah, I think that um, behaviour change principles are really key to all of that. And one of the resources that I really love um, because there's so much out there with behaviour change frameworks and approaches and all that sort of thing. But one, if I was to recommend one approach, it's the MPAC framework. Um, it was developed by Ryan Rhodes at the University of Victoria in um, on Vancouver Island. And it's a really practical 
Uh, so it's a website. It's really he provides lots of really practical tips and and resources for how you can do this with your patients. I love it. I think it's it's not well known enough. So that mm, that would be okay. sort of my number one. I would say. So I'll put that in the show notes, and right. so people can look that one up. So. It's so that's okay to be biased towards physical activity. You're doing a dedicating a research career to it, and you've made the case really effectively of of, of why physical activity is the uh, is really a foundation of your health and, and sometimes your sanity as well. I think we can all relate to that. Um, and so you said ex, you mentioned exercise is medicine, the well known phrase. So is exercise medicine, or is it that um, lack of exercise is a disease? Mm. And is that is that a, does that matter? Is that a question that you think is important, or is it just uh, semantics? What do you think? Well, it's both. Um, so therefore, maybe it is semantics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay. Good. We're but dismissed. I think that, <laughs> no, I think that both are important um, sort of constructs to have in your mind. Right. Yeah. Physical inactivity as a disease. Yeah, I, I haven't thought about it that way. Um, but I guess it is. It, I mean, it causes a lot of diseases. Hmm. It could be neither as well. It could be more just, <laughs> it's just an analogy, a way of, a way of making it seem l- less optional and more mandatory mm. and, 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 and drawing everyone's attention to the fact that lack of physical activity or, or physical activity is related to health mm. and outcomes. And so yeah. finding a way to do it. I guess um, exercise is medicine is a more positive framing yeah. of it. Um, physical inactivity is um, something that people have a lot of guilt about and shame. Mm, yeah. And I wonder whether, you know, we need to keep the messaging quite positive because of that, um, yeah. you know, because people feel bad enough already about themselves if, you know, they know that maybe they're, they've got a chronic disease and it's their fault or they think it's their fault. So, yeah. yeah. And let's, a really not, let's not add to the disease burden. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, good, yeah. good idea. This is why you're here. This is why I've got an expert <laughs> on the podcast. And, and if you think back to your, to your earlier findings or your earlier um, summary of the research, 25 minutes a day or 600 steps a day, if you're older and hospitalized um, is a, uh, it seems very achievable. If you're doing a, you're talking about behavior change and talk about a smart goal, perhaps that's sort of realistic in that acronym. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What about when you're younger? Perhaps in the mm. think about your trauma um, research experience and physical mm. activity from the Alfred work. Um, how much? If let's put, let's just do a case study. I'm in hospital and touch mm. wood. I'm in hospital and I've got two pathways I can go. I'm in my forties and I can go down a. I'm in there for a number of weeks, traumatic incident, um, and I could go down a pathway of low physical activity or high physical activity. Could we? Could, could you explain how things could go well or go poorly based on physical mm. activity for me? Yeah. So what we often see is that people who have, let's say, an ankle fracture or something like that, or even something more serious like a spinal fracture and a head injury and all of that sort of thing, Um, often really struggle to get back to their physical activity routine in the long run. And that might be due to pain or disability or dysfunction in a muscle or a joint or something like that. And I think that we did a a paper a few years ago that was a longitudinal study of major trauma survivors five years post-injury and um, 
we analysed 186 interview transcripts, so it was it was quite in depth. And what we found is that adaptation was really important for major trauma survivors. And what I mean by that is that the people who were doing quite well were the ones who perhaps they weren't able to run anymore, but they'd taken up a new physical activity pathway like swimming. Um, other people were um, very good at goal setting and had said, okay, I might not be able to, you know, go for a run anymore, but if I get out of the house once a day and walk around the block, then I know I'm doing really well. So goal setting is really important. Adaptation is really important. And then clinicians are really important as well because clinicians need to hold your hand through that pathway in a lot of circumstances, particularly in the early days where you do have all of these physical limitations and psychological um, impacts from the injury. And so that sort of very slow step-by-step process is really important and clinicians have such a major role in empowering people to want to keep moving forward and not give up. Um, and also I think even after the physical and the the um, yeah the physical limitations have been treated, there's still such an important role for physios to help establish people's physical activity routines moving forward. And it's not physical activity just for the sake of physical activity. It's, it's as I said before, it's a gateway to so many other good outcomes. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, if you want to have, you know, the recipe for a, a good pathway, it's, it's someone who has sort of a committed partner in their care along the way who is empowering them. Mm, well said. And we're thinking beyond the routine timeframes, three to five days in hospital with someone with elective orthopedic surgery, for example, and thinking about the rest of their life. Yeah. Interesting the point you made earlier about you were thinking more of an outpatients or a private practice perspective and sort of connecting with that listener. If they're still there, hello. Um, (laughs) Thanks for staying on this far into the conversation. Um, Good on you. And, And you were talking about say someone who's doing a, a general, uh, I think Pilates class, for example, and they've got some stiffness in their back and through that regular movement, they're connecting with their movement um, and physical activity. And they're sort of figuring out that I do this every day and hang on a minute. If I'm noticing over the last few weeks, it's getting a bit stiffer and they can mm-hmm. take some pre- preventative action as well. So mm. it's not, and, and you've taken, you, you've used some examples from that high end functional side all the way through to someone who's long-term hospitalized after major trauma, for example. Mm. So, yeah, so physical activity is another interesting point you made. Physical activity is more than walking and exercise, isn't it? You you mentioned someone standing as a part of their job or in the choir, I think you said. That's Mm. physical activity compared to if if you were sitting. Yeah. 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 Anything that increases your energy expenditure and uses your muscles, that's physical activity. So, yeah. Mm. Stand and up. It, <laughs> yeah. And it may be relatively small amounts of hockey ships, uh, hockey stick shaped uh, relationship. It may be relatively small amounts of, um, of physical activity you need. Do I need to go and bleep out? Did I accidentally say a swear word? No, you <laughs> didn't. Said relationship? You, you, said, you said ship. <laughs> oh, did I? I'm just <laughs> slurring my words here. That's probably a time, probably a sign we need to stop. But no, look, do you have any final thoughts, Christina? We've got so much. Um, from you already. And I feel like there's a part two in this, but a good excuse yeah, for us to I, have I a guess, coffee and um, catch up again. But 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess, you know, you and I have both had, you know, very sort of circuitous career pathways that, I mean, for me personally, I don't know about you, it's all been quite accidental. And um, I think that's probably another good message for, for new grads. It's not really a skill or a, a knowledge, but maybe an attribute just to, you know, keep your mind open to opportunities that come along because you never know where you're going to end up. Um, I'm, I'm still on that pathway and, you know, I think um, it, it's all been kind of just serendipity where I've ended up because of um, perhaps not being so, like as I said at the start, I really wanted to be a dance physio and I, I did that for a few years and then I went, hmm, actually, <laughs> that wasn't what I wanted to do and sort of moved on to something else just accidentally. And that was okay. So yeah. That's okay, yeah. And, and it, it can be it really okay. challenging yeah. mm. to give up on those dreams, mm. but um, there's there's no shame in it. And I think that staying open to opportunities throughout your career is is what will get you to a place that you're interested in and you enjoy and you're good at. Mm. It does. It's not only just okay. It 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 adds to your unique perspective in your field, mm. your special mm. interest area that you've now got. Um, yeah, and it and keeps things interesting. Like it it makes for an interesting career. You won't get bored and burnt out. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not necessarily a failure to try something mm. and then find that your interests lie elsewhere or that you evolve through it. In fact, that's it's, right. it's not a failure. It's it's something that is normal. It's something to expected. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's I think part that's why of the career. That's mm, why it's nice to bring on guests like yourself and you know highly experienced physios. In addition to the new grads, because I've got a new grad series. I think we're up to eleven or twelve. And mm-hmm. for for um, newly graduated one to two years out of uni um, clinicians and getting their perspectives and sort of in sort of looking at where you can go across your career. That's so really good mm. for people to see what you've done. There's plenty more we can talk about, but mm. I reckon we wrap it up there and move on to the next thing for the day. But thanks very much, Christina. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing some insights. Look in the show notes, everyone. I'll put the link to MPAC in there and anything else I can um, look up that Christina's mentioned. You can have a look at those resources. Great. Thanks so much, Luke. Thanks for the invitation. It's been, been fun chatting. We'll have to do it again. Great to catch up. Yeah, over a coffee next time. Indeed. Face-to-face, let's do it. <laughs> So um, everyone, if you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend and promote it on social media. On our behalf, it's a small community, um, the audience of this podcast, but uh, I get lots of feedback from people who are listening and finding these episodes helpful for their own development and um, looking a bit differently at their professional journey, particularly the students and new grads. So big shout out to all of you around the world, according to the map on my podcast host, all around the world listening. So hello and Um, There's more to come this year. So until next time, this is Christina Eckergren and Luke Perriton wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning.